0: Welcome to The Blast Zone, the podcast where we dig up the bombs that shook Hollywood and try to find out why they went up in flames. This week, there will be no refunds. Your refund will be escaping this death trap with your career. This is Semi Pro. Welcome, welcome to the Blast Zone.
1: Welcome to the Blast
0: Zone. We are not a podcast about bad movies. We are a podcast about movies that did badly. That's right. I am John Drake, in-house film critic of my Letterboxd account. And I'm Ian Dukes. I'm a
1: person with thoughts and feelings, and some of them are about movies.
0: Thoughts and feelings, but no big check for this Dukes. All right, Dukes. Where's my giant check? He deserves a big check. But movies, in case you didn't get it from that very obscure reference... Like semi-pro, which we'll be talking about today. Oh, yeah. But before we get into that, Ian, how are you doing this week?
1: You know when you bend a paperclip back and forth and it gets weaker and you keep bending it until what was once a strong piece of metal breaks down and crumbles into pieces?
0: I take it you're doing well.
1: <laughs> Don't worry. I'm the guy bending the paperclip. I'm just a dummy oh. who destroys perfectly good office supplies. And I'm doing all
0: right. Plot twist. Did not <laughs> see that one coming. I was certain you were the paperclip in this analogy. <laughs> you up for that one. But I'm relieved to hear that's not the case. Yeah. How are you? <laughs> I'm okay. We had our first snowfall of the year this morning. I woke up oh. to two, three inches of snow. Um, and also the power went out and I assume those two things were related. But now some lady just drove into a telephone pole oh, near geez. my house. So I think she's fine. But okay. It was we lost power for an hour. So that was fun.
1: That's not too bad. But when it's ice
0: cold outside, it's not very fun. You need that power for the heat. We don't have like a furnace or anything we've got. Oh, wow. Okay. We do have a furnace, but it's electric. So we need that electricity to make it hot.
1: Did you have to break out the blower and clear the driveway?
0: No, it wasn't quite that. That bad yet and okay. it was like the high today was in the 40s so i knew if i just waited a few hours it would be uh, gone anyway but you know I, you learn to savor those moments of snow because in 10 years there might not be any more snow
1: yeah you might have to tell your kids oh my god a sad tear-jerking is <laughs> explaining to your children what snow was but let's hope it doesn't quite get that far
0: well my son at least is old enough where he'll remember snow longingly probably <laughs> but we'll have to take him to one of those mountains where they make artificial snow so he can play around yeah all right so that's how we're doing this week did you happen to get gaze upon anything this week that you thought was interesting that you wanted to talk about? And I just remembered what I wanted to talk about this week. ah, That's why I was so fucking stumped. All right, (laughs) go ahead. (laughs) So
1: I watched something fun, a little bit of show history. In a prior episode, you, as part of a joke, made an offhand comment that the movie Sing slaps. And of course, I take your recommendation seriously. So I watched Sing, and you are right. Sing totally slaps. It's awesome. (laughs) It does exactly what I want from a musical. It lets uh, talented singers just sing their asses off and belt out big songs. And it's not a traditional musical because it's not characters singing how they feel about everything. It's them trying their hand at their favorite songs. So it doesn't have really full songs. kind of teases you, keeps you on the hook till the end when there's a big payoff and a big show and everyone gets to show you what they're really capable of. But it's more than entertaining enough to keep you on the hook that whole time. Stories is engaging. The cast is great. And now I'm ready. By the time this episode airs, we'll be about one week from Sing 2, the sequel coming out, December 22nd. So I'm down for it. And if anyone hears this and hasn't checked out the first one, now's your chance.
0: Yeah, Sing is just a delight. I have nothing bad to say about that movie. I was being 100% serious when I said that it's it absolutely slaps because it's just a great time. And I also thought it was interesting. I didn't realize this till I looked into it a little more, that Taron Egerton plays the gorilla. I believe his name is Johnny who covers I'm Still Standing by Elton John as the big emotional climax of the movie. Oh, right. And then just a year or two after that, he was cast as Elton John in Rocketman. He Rocket was Man. the
1: Rocketman. That's right.
0: I wonder if that... Had something to do with it. (laughs) That
1: was his audition tape. They're like, Why are you showing us a gorilla?
0: I mean, that is him singing. (laughs) Yeah, singing is really good. And I didn't know he was a singer like that. So just a fun little tidbit. So I was, you heard me frantically exclaiming that I remembered what I wanted to talk about because I knew I had an idea that was a little different. And it was because I had a podcast I wanted to talk about this week instead of a movie. But the podcast plays out like a documentary series. It's situated almost like a true crime podcast, except it's about when Bruce Willis took over a small town in Idaho in the late eighties and made it his little kingdom. So it's called Haleywood because Bruce Willis kind of settled in, and Demi Moore, he was with Demi Moore at the time, in Haley, Idaho, and just started buying up a lot of vacant properties and trying to remake this town in his image, and it led to all sorts of problems. Bruce Willis, a famous asshole, real dickhead, that certainly comes across with the people they interview from Haley that had to deal with him at the time. I haven't finished it yet. I'm done with the third episode, about to start the fourth. I do know, because I'd heard bits and pieces of the story throughout the years, and thought it was really interesting, was waiting for a Piece of media that would explore it in depth, either a book or a movie or or a podcast, as it happened to be. And I know it doesn't end well for the people of Haley, but I can't remember the specifics of why. So I'm interested to wrap it up and figure it out. But really interesting. And it scratches that itch of a true crime documentary, even though no major crimes are being committed throughout it. It's just, you know, there are (laughs) shady dealings going on and stuff, but it's treated almost like a murder mystery, except the murder is of a town instead of a person. (laughs) That is so
1: crazy. It freaks me out that that happened and that I never heard of this before. It sounds like a great podcast topic. Now I'm totally fascinated to hear what happened.
0: Yeah, it's called Haleywood. We're not affiliated with this podcast or anything, but we like to plug other shows that we admire. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm just trying to get the exact spelling. It's H-A-I-L-E-Y-W-O-O-D, Haleywood, because the town was Haley, Idaho. So definitely check that out. It's a really cool documentary. I'm enjoying it so far. And it's just reinforcing all my preconceived notions of Bruce Willis. So it's always nice to be vindicated, right? Sure. I think somebody's a dick, and then you find out that it, it, he definitely is.
1: Definitely. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I'm always shy about condemning anyone entirely, but-
0: me too. <laughs> <laughs> not not really.
1: It sounds like Hollywood has the receipts, so be interested to hear.
0: Yeah, very well done. I recommend it. If you want a movie recommendation, I did watch North Hollywood from 2021 about a young man with dreams of becoming a pro skateboarder, oh. and that was great. Really liked it. Vince Vaughn playing a dramatic role as a father, and I'm not going to get too in-depth on it because I already spent a lot of time talking about Hollywood, but check out North Hollywood. I, I skateboarded as a youth. That was one of my interests, so I'm always down for a fun movie about it. I the yeah. mid-90s, and this is very much in that vein. Cool. So, semi-pro. Yes. Ian, are you a advocate of the Will Ferrell playing sports a mini-genre that was blossoming in the 2000s? And what did you know about semi-pro before this episode?
1: Let me just tear off my warm-up pants and jump into this. I'm excited to talk about this movie.
0: Jones is excited! So excited!
1: I did not know all that much about it. I remembered the posters. I could picture Will Ferrell's face in it. I remember some of the marketing, because I think he went on a lot of shows. He did a lot of appearances. He did a Mm -hmm. lot to try to promote this thing. So I remembered that, and I remembered the hook that, hey, this is a Will Ferrell wacky comedy, but it's tied to something real in sports history. And I'm not sure if that was really one of the main focuses of the marketing campaign, but that aspect of it stuck with me for better or worse. I don't know if that helps actually sell this movie. It's an interesting tip a bit for me. I enjoy that about the movie, that it has this little kernel of historical grounding, but that's the part that stuck with me from the marketing.
0: But I didn't see it. Yeah, you're referring to, of course, the merger of the ABA and the NBA, which was a very real thing that happened in the time that this movie takes place. And it, it's almost a strange choice to make this kind of wacky, farcical comedy centered around this real event, because it gives the movie a bit of a tough balance to hit, where you have to, like, pay respects to the real events and how everything went down, but also right. Will Ferrell's just doing very Will Ferrell things. And spoiler alert, I thought this movie was good. Yeah, me too. (laughs) I liked it. It got absolutely trashed upon release, surprisingly so, because this was still kind of the height of Feral Mania. This is right before Step Brothers comes out, which I would say is the apex of his comedy career, yeah. critically and commercially. So the the response to this movie baffles me and, and we're going to have to do a little heavy lifting to try to unpack exactly what went wrong with this.
1: Yeah. I dipped into what the critics said after my first watch and I was stunned because I'm like, oh, here's a Will Ferrell movie. Might be just one of the mediocre ones because obviously it's not in this hollowed canon of Will Ferrell movies that everybody loves. And then I watched it. I'm like, hey, this is a good movie. It's really funny. Let me see what the critics said. And they're like, Mm-mm. this thing is Mm-mm. shit on toast. It's the worst <laughs> thing. I cried in agony during this entire movie, I'm like, what are they talking about? Why are they so mad at this movie? And I think this episode might just be us trying to make the case, like pointing out a bunch of funny stuff we laughed at and going, actually, this was funny and this was funny and look at all the good stuff, which could be a boring theme for an episode. It never works when I try to quote the movie lines, they always fall flat, but that's just what I do. I pulled a couple that I wanted to point out just because they tickled me. And I don't know, that might be our episode just going, wasn't that funny? And you go, yeah, that was funny. And we just scratch our heads.
0: For a little behind the scenes peek into the the world of Blast Zone. I was looking at the schedule and I was a little concerned that we hadn't really had a movie we both really liked in a long time. I felt like maybe we were getting a little too negative and I was like, and now we got semi-pro coming up. I don't know if that's the movie that's going to snap us out of this funk.
1: No, we did not expect that.
0: But then it did. Yeah, we, maybe it's just because we're both dying to have positive feelings about a movie again.
1: Something to make us laugh and smile <laughs>
0: for a moment. But no, now I am a fan of Will Ferrell. I'm not a huge fan. His involvement in a project doesn't automatically get me on board. There has to be something else to it, but I'm a white guy in my thirties, I loved Anchorman. I loved Step Brothers. I loved the other guys. And I know I had seen this movie before today, but I did not see it in theaters and I did not see it recently. It was just one of those things that kind of came and went and I had no desire to really revisit it again. But I remember liking it well enough when it first came out. And at that point in my life, I don't think I was paying attention to reviews, especially not of Will Ferrell movies. So I was also quite shocked to see what the reception had been critically to it, but even more so commercially. Like I thought all Will Ferrell movies just made money after a certain point. That was just it, you know, and that's why they kept getting made. I knew Lane. Of the Lost, it's like the outlier that lost a bunch of money.
1: Right. That one's known to be his flop.
0: But that was like an outlier in terms of the scope. It had a big budget and a lot of special effects. So I thought maybe that alienated some of his regular audience. Right. But I assumed all these type of movies did really well. If Will Ferrell was in this kind of middling sports comedy, it made a ton of money. So I was shocked to learn that two of these actually failed. There was Kicking and Screaming, where he plays a soccer coach, a kid soccer coach. And that was a little more of a PG movie. It might have been a PG-13 movie, but on the milder side of PG-13. So that kind of occupies a different space than what his fans were used to. I and mean, I know that one lost a little money. But that one I actually had seen in theaters. And then there was this one that flopped. So he was 50-50 on sports movies.
1: I didn't see Kicking and Screaming, and I did get the impression that was a little more targeted towards a younger audience. It feels like an earlier era, although this whole string of Will Ferrell, Golden Age is five or six continuous years, so it's not separated by a lot. He was cranking out a couple big movies a year during this run, and this was at the end of this big run that's anchored by... Man and Talladega Nights and Blades of Glory, all of which are beloved, and I just can't figure out why this movie doesn't sit at least close to them. I could see where people are like, ah, this doesn't have the sizzle of Talladega Nights, which maybe it doesn't. It doesn't run as hot. It's a little bit of a milder movie all the way through, but it's fucking
0: funny, man. I'm looking
1: at myself. I'm like, this a guy watching the screen, and he's laughing, and it's me. That makes it a funny movie. What other proof do I need?
0: Yeah, I would make the case this is better than Blades of Glory, and definitely better than Kicking and Screaming. So Uh, We'll have to explore and see if we can come up with some explanations for what went wrong. But do you want me to talk about the movie and how it got made and where it all came from?
1: Yeah, let's hear how this thing happened.
0: All right. So, Will Ferrell plays a sport. That was the one-sentence pitch for a string of comedies in the aughts, and they ranged the success both critically and commercially. By the time 2008 rolled around, Ferrell had been a NASCAR racer in Talladega Nights, a figure skater in Blades of Glory, and a soccer coach in Kicking and Screaming. He was going through more old sports than The Great Gatsby. His next idea was to base a movie around the ABA, a men's professional basketball league, which existed from 1967 to 1976, before merging with the NBA and having four of their teams absorbed. Farrell would play Jackie Moon, the player, owner, head coach of the fictional Michigan-based team The Flint Tropics. With a script written by longtime comedy writer Scott Armstrong, that's Scott with one T. Oh, thanks for clarifying. That's thanks with one T. And set to be directed by first-time director and apparent real person, Ken Alterman, they got to work. Given a relatively robust budget of $55 million, the cast headed to Flint in February 2007. Filming was completed that spring, and a release date of February 29, 2008 was set. The promotional push for the movie was sizable, with a music video for Moon's hit single Love Me Sexy being filmed, Old Spice and Anheuser-Busch commercials starring Moon being made, with the Anheuser-Busch ads being aired during Super Bowl 42 and even a Sports Illustrated swimsuit spread featuring Farrell as Moon and Heidi Klum being commissioned. Sadly, the film had more than just swimsuit issues. All the marketing in the world didn't sway critics, though, as they destroyed the movie with negative reviews, giving it a Rotten Tomato score of only 22%, which at the time was Farrell's lowest score since his supporting role in the disastrous SNL adaptation The Ladies Man. You know who thought it is, don't you? It is the fault of the Wang. The movie debuted at number one with $15 million, but that was considered very disappointing, as Talladega Nights had opened with more than three times that amount, and Blades of Glory with more than double that amount. The movie would limp out of theaters with $43.9 million gross revenue, but Ferrell would rebound later that same year with the much better received comedy Step Brothers.
1: That punctures the one possible theory that we go into this with, which is Feral fatigue. Like, oh, people were tired of him. He's over. He's done with. And then a few months later, he dropped Step Brothers and everyone's like, I love Will Farrell. He's the
0: best. So it wasn't that. And the other guys even came after Step Brothers, too. He still had a few hits in him. Yeah, um,
1: he wasn't done.
0: You can make the case that after the other guys, his career went on a downslope for a while, which we'll get into. But he still had hit movies in him at this point. And I remember jokes being made about the Will Ferrell playing a sport thing. So he can't think of what movie to make. Just put him in the silly uniform and let him go race a car triple of (laughs) basketball because he's like a goofy guy. And it's funny when he does stuff. But I, I don't think feral fatigue was as real a phenomenon as hindsight has made people believe it was, at least not at this point.
1: I mean, what's to be fatigued about? The guy is genuinely funny. If he has a decent script, even if he has not that decent, he is so good at making his material better. And this movie didn't need that much help. It's actually... We'll talk about as we go through the story. I think this is a really well-written movie, and Scott Williams, he has a great resume. It's not surprising that the movie is well-written, the script is tight. It has everything where you expect it to go, you know? A sports movie and a sports comedy, they're pretty formulaic, and so it's like, okay, it's not going to surprise me with stuff, but... It's got its own version of everything and it hits all the beats and it doesn't fall apart. I was looking for cracks like this part of the movie sags or this storyline doesn't make sense or these guys aren't relatable or empathetic. And everything pretty much clicked for me. I don't know. It's like the more I try to scrutinize this movie, the more I heap praise on it.
0: Yeah, it's a tight 90 minutes. It's got great laughs. It's got a real heart to it. It's got a unique setting in Flint, Michigan, where not that many movies have been set. So you're not seeing the same old streets and buildings you used to. It has an affection for the city of Flint, too, which I found very endearing.
1: Yeah, Um, it doesn't make fun of Flint. It doesn't trash it. And it shows the environment is actually interesting. It's a period piece. And the streets and the bar that they hang out in, all these locations just look cool. And like the way you put it, it's cast in this really warm, nostalgic light.
0: It genuinely made Flint a place that you'd want to go (laughs) hang out. Aside from the comedy move of naming the team based in Flint, Michigan, the Tropics, which is just good humor because there's that old Joke from basketball. I'm not sure if you've seen basketball. I think we oh, can cover ago. that is eventually. The Lakers move to Los Angeles, where there are no lakes, and the Jazz move to Utah, where they don't allow music. So then, like the tropics, like going to Flint doesn't feel all that far fetched because there are like real world comparisons to make that are funny. Yeah, it's a great. But uh, like even that's just like a slick little joke that they move in there and they never really remark upon it. It's just confident enough to be like, all right, that's funny. And if you get it, you do. But if you don't, it doesn't weaken anything.
1: And it works story wise. It actually helps that they made the city likable because a lot. Of the movie is about team loyalty. The players are loyal to their team. There's fans that are super loyal, and that stuff feels real and honestly grounded in something rather than ironic and tongue-in-cheek, which would sabotage the heart of the movie.
0: Absolutely. Do you want to walk us through the story of the movie, and we'll go over these plot points that we're alluding to?
1: Yeah, let's get into it. So, the year is 1976. Jackie Moon, played by Will Ferrell, is a disco one-hit wonder who used his music money to buy a basketball team, the struggling Flint, Michigan tropics of the ABA. And he's not just the owner. Jackie is the tropics starting power forward, head coach. Announcer and head of promotions. When the ABA announces that its top four teams will merge into the NBA and the others will be shut down, Jackie fights for a chance for the Tropics to make it to the NBA if they can just finish in fourth place. Hoping to spark his team, Jackie trades for former Celtics backup point guard Ed Monix, played by Woody Harrelson. Unfortunately, Monix has agreed to come to Flint mostly to try to win back his former girlfriend who lives there. Then the ABA commissioner informs Jackie that fourth place won't be enough. The Tropics will also need to draw at least 2,000 fans per home game to prove that their franchise is NBA worthy.
0: Well, there it is. Good setup for an underdog sports movie, right?
1: Classic problems, clear cut, and then it escalates nicely in that first act. First, he attacks it with the easy way solution. Well, we just need to get better. Let me just sign some guy. And then we see that's not so easy. Monix doesn't fit in great from the get-go. And then there's even more problem. They've got to bring up the attendance. It's piling on the problems for our hero. Jackie Moon.
0: So the player intros that Jackie Moon is doing, I found them very funny and charming, except obviously there is one major exception. They drop a pretty bad joke right in there off the top. Yeah. Um, if you're going to have a bad reaction to this movie, that is by far the most offensive and distasteful thing that happens in the entire movie. It is unfortunate that it's in there at all and even more so that it's right at the top.
1: Yeah, I think the credits are still rolling. This opening sequence is this song montage of Jackie's song and then it's cues right into the team introductions and you find out that Jackie's also the announcer. And yeah, they're really hilarious and then they make this one problematic joke that mocks people with intellectual disabilities and you're like, oh man, Why'd you have to do that? And then they double down on it. There's a tag on the joke. You're like, okay, I thought we were past this by this point, but
0: we weren't. There's actually two tasteless jokes in this opening scene. Okay. Because they also go out of their way to make a joke of the insinuation that the cheerleaders could ever have a job as an astronaut because they're...
1: Oh, right. He insults the cheerleader.
0: They assume they're dumb because, you know, they're cheerleaders. So yeah, not a great start, but the movie gets much more lighthearted and uh, wholesome from there. Yeah,
1: it does. So bear with it.
0: The, The movie thankfully doesn't, you know, make it a running joke really. It's one and done and then they move on and I think the movie tends to punch up from there. Uh, It's just one glaring example right off the top that I could totally understand why if it left a bad taste in your mouth and maybe colored the rest of your perception of the movie.
1: But yeah, this is no Wow Wow West. They don't keep harping on the really crummy stuff.
0: They don't and a recurring joke that the movie goes back to is Will Ferrell's and Jackie Moon by extension being torn between being a player and the head coach promoter whenever they have to do a promotional thing that he tries to sabotage. So he doesn't have to pay anyone out as a winner is always a good thing.
1: Most of his promotions involve some level of fraud and fakery. He's given away a giant check and he has no ability to pay for the $10,000 check. Who was the
0: sponsor? Was it Bush beer or Bush Bavarian or something like that? Yeah. And then he tells they, them. Well, don't worry about it. The, the sponsor will pay for it. They're not actually a sponsor. I just thought it sounded professional. So <laughs> let's set up the scene a little more because I think the scene is something the movie comes back to again and again, and it has a pretty good payoff. But there's a longtime fan of the team who is given a chance to win $10,000 if he hits a shot, not even from half court, from the other free throw line. Yeah. Am I remembering that correctly?
1: Uh, yeah. They call it the moon shot. And it's a real long shot.
0: And I actually believe the character making the shot is maybe a distant relative of Ian's.
1: My cousin in Michigan, I did not know that he was going to be in this movie.
0: But they're like, (laughs) what's your name?
1: He's like, Dukes.
0: Tell everybody what's your name. Dukes.
1: (laughs) I'm going to pull every Dukes quote from this movie and intersperse (laughs) it with the episode.
0: As you should. I think it's your birthright. You kind (laughs) of have to.
1: I don't get a lot of characters named after me, so we're running with it for the rest of this episode. So yeah, I was (laughs) stoked. Dukes won the 10 grand and Jackie immediately tries to be like, oh, you want a giant check that says $10,000 on it. And the way he
0: words that is very funny to me, but we'd be remiss if we didn't point out who is playing Dukes. It's yes. fucking Jackie Earl Haley. What does he do in this movie?
1: He's pulled off the Rorschach mask and uh, most of the rest of his clothes. He's shirtless in this whole movie. Shirtless. <laughs> He's got long
0: hair and a bandana. Awesome. I was unaware that adult Jackie Earl Haley had a sense of humor. You reminded me he got his start in the Bad News Bears. Which, I don't remember you know, him in that. Neither do I. He was Kelly Leak is the character he played. And he was in all the sequels as well, as far as I could tell. But then after 1990, he took a long break from acting and came back in Little Children. So let me tell you the roles I know Jackie Earl Haley from. Uh, Little Children plays a pedophile. Watchman plays a murderer, racist, vigilante, terrible person. Shutter Island playing like an evil mental patient. Nightmare on Elm Street playing literally Freddy (laughs) Krueger, the literal boogeyman. A supernatural pedophile rapist murderer. Yeah. And then Dukes. This role could not have been further out of what I would have guessed Jack Earl Haley would be capable of doing, but he's great in it. He's so good
1: with such a wacky role. He has only a few lines. They're all in his mumbled delivery. And then the rest of the time, his whole joke is that he's nodding off in the middle of everything, including the middle of his big shot. He wakes up and chucks it and hits it. It's just an out there character and he owns it. And it's pretty, pretty fun. There's so many good cameos. This is a little bit bigger than a cameo role because he recurs throughout the film. It's a running gag. But like all these people come in and just light up these little roles. It's a really deep movie.
0: I mean, the announcing team, Will Arnett and Andy Daly, I think are the secret maybe not even so secret But the MVPs of the movie for me, like they keep everything grounded and it it gives you the chance to just insert humor into every single scene because everything they say is so funny and they have such great rapport with each other. Andy Daly, I love him from Review with Forrest McNeil, which is a show I know I've espoused my love for before and you promised me you'd check it out again. (laughs)
1: Maybe I sampled the wrong bit. I'm going to have to give it another shot because Andy Daly, he tends to play Andy Daly type characters, which are these understated, meek, soft-spoken guys who become doormats, get run over by louder people of the Will Arnett vein and he does that in this movie but it's nicely measured it's not over the top and so you don't lose the humanity of those characters and it doesn't make me uncomfortable the way sometimes his stuff can when he's getting shit on to an umpteenth degree
0: he's also got a a bit of a backbone in this movie not much but at least enough where you feel like he's a real person and not just enough yeah but I will say the thing about Review that I think makes it unique, because, you know, a lot of the show is just watching him be miserable, but it's more of his own making. The character of Forrest has people that are actively trying to help him, like people that love him and he has a good family. But it's his single-minded dedication to the show that he's making, which nobody cares about, nobody watches, but he's still hopelessly devoted to it, which kind of ruins his life. So there's a little more to it. It's, it's more brought upon himself by himself in that show.
1: Yeah, I think I need that context to understand that character and go back and give him another- the shot
0: I, I can't recommend that show enough so we're talking about uh, cameos and appearances this movie has probably every good comedic actor from this era more or less in it <laughs> like
1: it's easier to list who's not in it okay paul rudd is not in it will forte will forte's not in it
0: john c Riley.
1: but it's got in the smaller roles so many people we'll touch on them individually david Keckner andy richter rob cordry right that's in this one there's a couple cordry bros but
0: It's not Nate. Yeah, Nate was in Ghostbusters. This is Uh, Rob Corddry with hair. Very off-putting. He looks like Ike (laughs) Barinholtz of. Christmas future.
1: Ooh, yeah, that's a good comparison. I love him in this and I like the hair somehow. He's less prickly with the shaggy haircut. I loved it.
0: Jason Sudeikis is just a guy eating nachos in one scene. As far as I can tell, it's Ed Helms is a reporter wearing a turtleneck. I think he calls him turtleneck.
1: Yeah, he's credited um, as turtleneck in the credits. Kristen Wiig is a bear
0: handler. Yeah, he's doing great stuff. She's great in this. Her scene was one of my favorites. Tim Meadows. Tim Meadows doesn't get much to do in this, but he's great with the time he has. Tim Meadows is so
1: good. And maybe just in my mind, he's obviously a favorite of us on the show. And when he showed up, because he shows up in a fairly early scene, I'm like, oh, Tim Meadows is in this too. And he's talking about, I got to get back with the team. You're like, oh, he's going to be a crucial part of the, you know, the team evolution. (laughs) He's not. He has one scene where he's the butt of the joke and he's gone. And it's just a super fun cameo.
0: Let's talk about that scene, because that does happen in this section of the movie. And it's probably even the bad reviews of this movie I read were like, well, the poker scene is really funny that, you know, I enjoyed that but the rest of the movie didn't live up to that scene. So let's talk about the poker scene. It's Jackie, the Andy Richter character, Bobby D. Bobby D. It's Arnett and Daly is Dick Pepperfield and Lou Redwood. Right. And it's Jackie Moon, obviously. Is Father Pat there? No. I don't think so. No, Father Pat's not there.
1: Is that everyone? Yeah, and then Tim Meadows sticks out as the cameo.
0: Right, because he, he's a delusional man whose arm is in a cast, and he keeps saying that when he gets out of the cast, he's going to get back on the team. And Jackie Moon has to remind him uh, several times that he's never been on the team and <laughs> never will be.
1: He's not even a good
0: athlete. <laughs> it's just a funny little back and forth. But then they make a joke about Lou Redwood. He was enlisted during Vietnam, but never actually went to Vietnam. Where did he go? Ann Arbor? Is that where they say? Well,
1: that's what the Andy <laughs> Richter character says.
0: And then Tim Meadows... Yeah, he yeah, accidentally insults calls him. ...calls him a giant. Jive Turkey.
1: Jive Turkey is not cool.
0: (sighs) No. In the 70s, that was the worst thing you could call someone, apparently. Because they make a point to be like, no, he called you a cocksucker. Try to (laughs) all agree.
1: Try to gaslight him that he wasn't called a Jive Turkey, but he's having none of that. And Will Arnett gets scary, as he can do. He can be a very intense man. And it turns out he has a gun in his waistband and he pulls it on Tim Meadows. And that's only the start of how crazy it gets.
0: (laughs) They play a little Russian roulette. Well, unknowing Russian roulette, I guess. They're all pointing the gun to their head and saying things that are supposedly not true, but actually are true. And then pulling the trigger dramatically. (laughs) Jackie Moon, I think, points it at his penis at some point and pulls the trigger.
1: It's a real (laughs) uncomfortable. Like, I get really uncomfortable when you know that the joke is going to be that it's loaded. He threatens Tim Meadows and he throws it down on the table and laughs I was just fucking with you I never load this gun and then they're all like oh they're just cracking up with the relief of it wasn't really a, a life or death situation so then they're all making jokes so they're all grabbing the gun and doing their own version of the joke and everybody shoots it once at their own head at the other guy at this dick and I'm so cringing during this because I'm like okay there's a bullet in there what's gonna happen and I'm actually literally scared that someone's gonna die which is obviously not gonna happen in a comedy but something awful is gonna happen but it, it, I, like- it could
0: happen in like the hangover but not in this movie <laughs> right
1: it's not quite on that angle but it won me over like I started out very tense and like, I don't like this I don't like this and the jokes just were so good and the last dry fire with Jackie just goofing off and shooting his own dick and that was the last round before he throws it on the table and it goes off
0: and then there's a pregnant pause where they're all checking to see if anyone's been hit and I knew right away that Tim Meadows arm which is in a heavy <laughs> plaster cast is going to start bleeding and it does with this trickle, but it's more of Tim Meadows, just like the glee on his face. was like, oh, I did get shot.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, just a classic Tim Meadows delivery, <laughs> laughing his way through something awful. Really great
0: tag on that scene. And then we basically never see the Tim Meadows character again. And then there's another big laugh moment during one of the games when Jackie, was he called for a travel or a foul? I don't even remember what the inciting incident was with Father Pat.
1: I think it was the travel because Jackie has this thing where he posts up in the low post and he keeps demanding the ball and kicking it right back out and then demanding it again. That's like his signature, like, uh, can you call it
0: a move? I don't think so.
1: Dumb basketball, gag that the movie does and he keeps going back to that and then like finally he takes the shot and he makes it with this beautiful running hook except he gets called for traveling so he's so mad right
0: i did want to say that i looked he's not in the paint so he's not violating the three second rule
1: yeah no Uh, they're pretty good with the basketball (laughs) is fairly authentic in this
0: but so he gets called for the travel and he says to father pat Suck my cock, I'll murder your family. Just like that, one sentence, no punctuation between any of it. Screamed Um, in
1: classic Will Ferrell, angry guy style, just hilarious on its own. It
0: will always get me. Yeah, I don't know what it is about his man-baby tantrums that always make me laugh. But then they go back and forth a few times, and Father Pat insinuates that... That Jackie's beloved mom may not be in heaven, which causes Jackie to pull the team off the court. They forfeit the game. The announcers get up and leave. They work even for though, Jackie. He's like, yeah. That's
1: it. Cut the broadcast.
0: Even though Dick Pepperfield says he's coming back after the commercial break, but it's symbolic. He just wants you to know that he's mad. And it was very funny how they they zeroed in on that one out of line comment that Father Pat made when yes. clearly Jackie has been verbally abusing him in terrible ways for oh, years just whole, probably. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Jackie is awful to Father Pat and Father Pat finally breaks down in this scene and, and everyone sides with Jackie's like all right we're done. This
0: character is so firmly in Matt Walsh's wheelhouse, too. Father Pat is just vintage Matt Walsh. Also, this is his second appearance on the podcast. We had him in Ghostbusters. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of repeat customers in this episode of Blast Zone.
1: I forgot he was in Ghostbusters because there was so many people in Ghostbusters, but they were so wasted. And there's so many people in this movie, and they're all delightful they're like i'm so glad that guy's in this movie it's
0: the opposite well i mean you know you can argue like jason sudeikis is wasted in this movie but would that part have been as good with someone else playing it no you couldn't just plug in another actor and gotten as funny a 30 second performance as you do with jason sudeikis as the season ticket holder eating his own nachos (laughs) that he brought from home which is just very funny to me i don't know yeah
1: it's totally (laughs) dumb it's out of nowhere and it's just another little funny gem like any one of these little things it's the kind of movie that where if it becomes your personal favorite thing there's a ton of those moments that you can just cling to and go, oh yeah, remember that scene, remember that scene.
0: So was there anything else from this section you wanted to go over or should we jump into part two? Let's jump into act two. All right. At first, Monix has trouble fitting in with his new team, but when his teammates see his fierce determination and work ethic, they vote to have Monix take over Jackie's coaching duties and he begins to whip the team into shape. The new and improved tropics start winning games and make it up to fifth in the standings. Meanwhile, Jackie stages more and more outlandish promotions and attendance is much improved. But the night before the final game that could put the tropics in fourth place, The commissioner returns with bad news. The NBA has decided that no matter what, Flint is too small a media market and they won't be taking the tropics. Their dream is over.
1: Yeah, classic Dark Night of the Soul moment. Everything comes crashing down. And like these things happen, they're kind of plausible. It's not the kind of wacky comedy where the plot points have to be implausible. Like there's a real sports movie inside this comedy sports movie.
0: Yeah, they give you real stakes and they take time to not just make it the Jackie Moon show. You know, we didn't talk as much in the first section, but Clarence, the Andre Benjamin character and Monix, of course, are like co-leads of this movie. So it gives you more than one player that you actually care about where they end up and have a real character arc. So that gives it real stakes, which is smart because it's a sports movie and you want the sports to be captivating to some degree or else you're going to lose people during those long stretches where there's game footage.
1: Yeah, there's a lot going on. The only thing that worried me that shook me off my stride for this movie is when Monix came in and when I realized how big of a character arc he would have. His whole thing is to get back his girlfriend, who's played by Maura Tierney, also really good in this. I've always been a fan of hers, but I'm like, wait a minute, this is Jackie Moon's movie. And all of a sudden, the love interest is from this secondary Woody Harrelson character. Is this going to work? And somehow it does. And that's full of crazy comedy too. That's where Rob Cordry comes in and there's an absolutely absurd love triangle with yes. Lynn's current boyfriend and Monix who's trying to get her back. But all that works in Andre Benjamin, too. These characters, like you said, have arcs and they're relatable and you want them to succeed. You want to see what happens.
0: Yeah, a good choice by the screenwriter to not just dial in on Will Ferrell that much. I can see like we talked about Will Ferrell fatigue in the term of his career. And While I don't think that's necessarily a thing, I do think Will Ferrell fatigue can happen in the course of a movie. If it's a little too much of just him, I think he's best when he has good people to play off of and isn't just center stage 100% of the time. So that's one thing I thought this movie does really well.
1: That's a great point, because his character is the least grounded and the most wacky and the most likely to do big, obnoxious stuff. If he was on screen in every scene, working the next crazy ploy, it might be too much. But yeah, there's a lot to round out the movie and make the rhythm of it feel pleasant.
0: But even his over-the-topness has a purpose. There are some movies where you feel like he's just being goofy for the sake of it and going big just because he knows he can. But here, even when he's doing the bits with Trying not to score points so he doesn't have to give out like free corn dogs. He's there's a lot of crazy, like silly comedy in that sense, but you understand why he's acting that way, which makes all the difference.
1: Yeah, it's totally grounded. It's a pattern. Part of his character is setting up promotions that he can't pay off.
0: How many corn dogs did he have to give out? Thousands? Yeah, but it they, was some ridiculous like, we don't even thing. Have corn dog. <laughs> and he just sprints out of the arena at the end of it <laughs> and they never pay it off. Like there's no follow up at all. You never find no. out that there was, you know, repercussions, which is just a great joke that he just starts running out out of the arena. I don't know. This movie tickles me, man. I can't help it.
1: Yeah, like some
0: of these things just work. There's the eyeliner game, which was a good bit. I did want to give Josh Brayton, who plays Twiggy, some credit for this scene where he's doing some good physical comedy in the scene. And just, I think he's the one who first notices that the eyeliner burns when he okay. starts sweating, which just leads to a whole nother insane series of events.
1: Yeah, as a, like a escalating bit, it's great. If you haven't seen it, the eyeliner game is one of Jackie's schemes he cooked up to help the team win because he's okay at basketball but his idea of how to make the team more intimidating is they're going to put eyeliner on and just freak out their opponents so they come out with eyeliner and they're mean mugging at the opposing point guard and they actually force a turnover because they just freak him out so much telling him they're going to hypnotize him with their big eyes <laughs> and that part's goofy and then it switches right into oh shit this backfired when you sweat the eyeliner runs and they're all screaming and burning and just flailing on the ground with their eyes on fire <laughs> and again it gives Will Ferrell a chance to scream in his hilarious pained way that he does I forgot his line it feels like a cat pissed in my eyes or something
0: like that. (laughs) That's what it is. And that's not even the fight game. The fight game comes later.
1: Yeah, there's so many big scenes of physical comedy. The other one where the other team is pissing them off and they know that the commissioner is watching so they have to restrict their fight to just during the commercial break and then all shit breaks loose.
0: Yeah, just a good bit. Good times. So, talked about it a little bit when we were going over the cameos but Kristen Wiig is in this movie playing a bear handler for Dewey the Bear that Jackie Moon says he's going to fight after a game.
1: That's the top escalation We've gone up from the eyeliner to the corndog promotion, and then we've got to pull out all the stops. The commissioner's coming. That's the anchor for the Dewey scene. We've tried a bunch of stuff to get attendance up, but now the commissioner's coming. How are we going to get everyone there? And Jackie's, I've got a plan, and it's Dewey the killer bear.
0: Yeah. So, first of all, Kristen has some of my favorite lines in the movie during this little section, playing an absolutely clueless bear handler. Yes. But when Farrell compliments her little hat, she goes, it used to be normal-sized hats, so I put it in the dryer. <laughs> <laughs> I loved. But the line that Jackie screams into the microphone of Dewey has killed people in public before. Oh no, he says that on his talk show appearance with Dick Pepperfield. It takes on a little bit of a tragic note when you consider what really happened in real life. And the, again, there is some misinformation about the scene out there. Okay. This did not happen during the filming of Semi Pro was done, filmed in the can when this happened. But the bear that plays Dewey, which was named Rocky, it was a Five-year-old, seven-and-a-half-foot-tall, 700-pound grizzly bear.
1: Wow. Okay.
0: So that's a sizable bear.
1: Yeah, that's the real
0: thing. So it was handled by Randy Miller, who was a stunt person and bear handler who worked with Rocky many times. He was the stand-in for Will Ferrell during the scene where you couldn't see Will Ferrell's face, but the bear was actually physically attacking him. On April twenty second, 2008, which was about two months after SemiPro was released, Rocky bit and killed... 39-year-old Stephen Miller, who was Randy Miller's cousin and fellow bear trainer, mm. and yeah, he died while, I'm not sure if it was just for a performance or if it was filming another scene. A lot of the talk around his death when it happened was that, you know, it happened during Semi-Pro, but it did not. Uh, the movie was done and wrapped and already in theaters by the time this happened. Unfortunately that this happened at all, Yeah, yeah, kind of a tragic story. I don't know what became of Rocky after that. Yeah,
1: that is tragic. It takes some of the fun out of enjoying the scene, which really came out Fantastic. The scene has a really good mix of a real bear, so you know that a real bear is there, but there's also several moments where a clearly stuffed bear comes into frame. Yeah,
0: almost intentionally like raggedy looking to make it over the top silly. Yeah,
1: Um, it's comic and keeps it light and not too scary, even though. Will Ferrell is screaming and crying for the whole thing.
0: I liked Wiggs character's way to handle the situation was just to, like, disappointedly be like, Dewey, don't do that. (laughs) She just seems annoyed with him. But, I mean, that's the risk of working with, you know, live dangerous animals, I suppose.
1: A lot of bear stories don't end well. But we can't put the blame on this movie. This part of the movie was executed really well. They bring it back. The bear escapes. The Andy Richter character goes into the cage to try to rescue Jackie Moon. The bear heads out into the stadium. And there's a hilarious moment where he gets on the mic and tells everyone to panic because the bear is out there.
0: Called back to it in my opening joke during the intro. But Bobby D, what a friend, right? He jumps in that cage without hesitation to try to save Jackie. And then there is a scene later in the third act of the movie where isn't Bobby just jogging? through the park and just gets tackled <laughs> by a bear because Dewey is back for him.
1: Yeah, it catches you off guard because it's one of the dramatic moments of the movie showing the various people dealing with the aftermath it's at the very low point when it all seems lost and they're in their real lives and it's a, a sequence of them and you're like actually getting emotional about these characters that you care about and then it ends with a bear attack.
0: Yeah, there's good comedic timing. Was there anything else from Act 2 that we need to discuss before we move on to the final act?
1: Let's bring these guys home to the finals and see if we can win fourth place, I guess. Yes. <laughs> Woo-hoo. All right, let's so, go for it. With their NBA dreams off the table in the final game, Monix rallies the despondent tropics to nevertheless leave everything on the floor and try to win fourth place for their own sense of pride. Things look bad when the tropics are badly outclassed in the first half of the game. And just before halftime, Jackie is knocked out cold by a vicious foul. While unconscious, Jackie has a vision of his deceased mother in heaven who shows him a new shot, the alley-oop. They use a series of alley-oops to even the score, but in the final play, they lean on Monix's gritty determination to score the winning points. Monix gets his girlfriend back, and Jackie is invited to work in promotions for the NBA. Classic happy
0: ending. Classic happy ending. I feel the need to bring up that alley-oops had been around since the 1950s. Oh, Over 20 years when this was released. Bill Russell was famous for using it in college with teammates. The movie doesn't seem to be overly concerned, though, with the oh. accuracy as far as that that goes. Like you
1: said, the movie has to walk that tricky line between having some real historical stuff in it and needing to invent something kooky. And it was just, it worked for me. When I saw this, I'm no basketball historian, so I'm like, is that true that nobody was doing alley-oops at this time in the 70s? But it's just plausible enough to be like, okay, I'm going with it. And the director did nice work. The sports action in this movie is pretty compelling. So that scene with their alley-oop dunking on the spurs... In the second half is thrilling there's a lot of actual sports movie joy in that
0: when you say the director you mean kent alterman and i want to hold on kent alterman i just did air quotes because this guy's a fucking ghost
1: yeah mystery <laughs> man fine director from everything i can tell we can get into what we know about him when we wrap up this section
0: i think, yeah. I think we just did okay <laughs> he directed this movie end of end and, of biography that's all
1: we know about him yeah where are they now? As they might say, it's strange because this movie could have hit, and he could have been a, a staple of two thousands comedy. Been a but contender,
0: but the the have scene, and, and specifically, just also good laughs because everybody's just complete shock and right. bafflement about they don't know what they what just saw. happened.
1: <laughs> yeah, that goes. It falls on Ref Pat to determine what just happened and is it a legal shot? And there's a little bit of an argument there, and then he goes two points. And then Ian Roberts plays the opposing coach of the Spurs. He goes and says, are you out of your mind? He was floating. Is this ghost ball? A totally stupid line that stuck out to me as just one of the little gems.
0: Yeah, just good stuff. You know, whether or not the alley-oops were treated with accuracy doesn't really matter when the jokes are good.
1: When they're funny, yeah.
0: And they were. You know, they find a way to make this section more dramatic than the other two while also making it funny like Jackie wakes up in a dumpster but that whole scene ends up being hilarious anyway like he's talking about actually singing about killing himself to the tune of his famous hit song but right. it's still is funny somehow Yeah, eating a pancake he found that was one of the more
1: edgy scenes I thought or more over the top scenes and where Will Ferrell because he's so charming and so good at all these kind of moods made it work and made it hilarious in the end yeah he's eating a pancake he found in the dumpster and Monix talks him out of his deep moment of despair
0: and back to
1: rally. The team
0: rally the team for the Flint Mega Bowl, which he holds a press conference for.
1: Yeah, the rejuvenated Jackie. He's found a giant 25 foot howitzer, somehow got that into the auditorium.
0: <laughs> it makes me laugh when I think,
1: yeah. That. And this is where that is a more zaniness of the press conference. He's just calling on these random reporters and calling them by what they're wearing. That's where he calls on turtleneck and then he goes over to white pants. And, and it's just like all <laughs> these absurd moments that are just really charming and funny.
0: Yeah, just good stuff. He singled out a quote, Dick Pepperfield, after Jackie. He gets his big injury that, I'm sorry, I'm just laughing. at
1: that. Yeah, I can't do it Andy Daly justice because he gets knocked out. He's lying there. They're like, we're going to have to get the stretcher. Like, we don't have a stretcher, Jackie sold it. So
0: like, they have to. Which is also just a good joke.
1: Yeah, it's a good joke. They're leaning over him. Then they're like, oh, we got to pick him up. So then they reach under him to pick him up. And you already see it looks terrible. Like his neck is lolling over. And Andy Daly is commentating. As, Jackie's teammate's doing just an awful job stabilizing his spine as they carry him off the court. And that was just.
0: I have nothing to add. To this, I'm just laughing. <laughs> it was so funny. It's
1: probably not as <laughs> funny if you just hear us do it. Watch the movie and hear Andy Daly because yeah, it.
0: it really lands just because of his deadpan. Like he still has that grave concern in his voice when he says it, yeah, <laughs> which makes it work all the better. And it's um, just
1: the timing of it. You're having that same thought just as you hear him articulate it <laughs> so well. It's a great
0: moment. So, while Jackie's unconscious, as we mentioned briefly in the synopsis, he he goes to heaven yeah. and talks to his mom. But I think we need to give this moment a little more attention simply because of who is playing his mom and for the rest, record i checked his mom is not named she's just jackie's mom in the credits okay miss moon i would suppose but played by the great patty labelle another surprise cameo
1: you were not expecting patty labelle in the final act of this movie i guarantee that
0: right anyone who (laughs) says they were is a fucking liar or involved in the making of this movie
1: (laughs) and she's funny it's just one of those goofy absurd scenes he's floating in the clouds she's forgiving him for everything including stealing her song which was how he made his money
0: also I, I don't even know why that would be an issue if your mom died and left a hit song behind i think she'd be happy if you if you have made you know, a big hit use it and it make a life for yourself
1: i guess <laughs> you know you might want to credit your mom for writing it so i get why he felt a little guilty but she had obviously she, she tells him she forgave him long ago for that it's a very heartwarming moment
0: it is nice and then he snaps out of it with some smelling salts and he's back at it and he teaches the team the alley-oop spine is fine yeah as we covered they win the game they don't go they I don't get absorbed to the ABA, but everything works out. But the scene of celebration in the streets of Flint very quickly turns bad, which is a thing we've seen in comedies before. I think Basketball did this as well, okay. interestingly enough. It's another parallel to Basketball that I've found. But I love how the movie doesn't remark upon it. You know, like people are celebrating, but then suddenly, like, cop cars are getting flipped over and stuff. But then it just cuts back, and they never really bring it up. It's just, it just a scene of celebration that goes dark very quickly, and then it just cuts away and you never hear about it again. And there's
1: a great joke in the middle of it that I didn't catch till the second watch. The camera's panning across the scene of some chaos starting to unfold. You see a cop car and it starts being lifted up from the opposite side and it gets rolled over. And only then when it rolls over, do you see who was pushing it? And it's a row of beat cops in their blues. They're like,
0: oh i didn't even catch that you didn't see that yeah the cops the cops
1: rolled their own car that was their celebration
0: how apropos and then we find out i I had a note when i was watching the movie two-thirds of the way through that if dukes doesn't get his money i'm going to lose my fucking (laughs) mind because this poor guy he's been trying to get paid his ten thousand dollars that he's rightfully owed the whole movie at one point will ferrell just tells him he says go to a bigger bank that takes big checks yeah that
1: has a big check department (laughs)
0: So he does. I don't know what bank he found, but he just wanders off. But no, at the end, you find out that Jackie is going to make things right. He sends him, I think, $2,300, which looks like a lot of money. Brick of cash must be mostly ones. <laughs> must be because it's a hefty brick. Uh, and says when he gets his ABA buyout money, he will be paying the rest. That's a, a nice loose end to tie up because I think Dukes was a, a character everyone loved.
1: Yeah, it shows the heart of the movie that, yeah, they didn't want to shit on Dukes at the end. They wanted to give him just a total heartwarming win. He was put upon this whole time and he was too out of it to know that he was losing this whole time and in the end he wins in just a really
0: warm way. Trash! So that was semi-pro. Was there anything, any story beats we missed that you wanted to uh, go back and, and touch on? No,
1: I think we covered it all. I feel, It's a feel-good movie. And I feel good just talking
0: through it. I had a lot of fun going over this story, but let's get into some of the behind-the-scenes stuff. Like we mentioned, Ken Alterman, fucking made-up person that directed this movie. <laughs> the only movie he ever directed. He hasn't done anything since this movie. He was a producer on some movies before this, but not since. He just seems like he left Hollywood completely after this movie. He was a producer on such movies as Mr. Woodcock, the Billy Bob Thornton comedy, oh boy. and also a History of Violence, Really? The Cronenberg masterpiece with Viggo Mortensen, and then Son of the Mask the terrible Jamie Kennedy sequel to The Mask, and also Little Children, the critically acclaimed Kate Winslet and Jackie Earl Haley movie. Wow. So I don't know what to make of this guy's career. I thought he was one of those, like, Alan Smithy names. Right. You know, you just make up a name when somebody doesn't want to be credited for something. But no, he seems like a real person, except he directed one movie and disappeared off the face of what the earth. What
1: a shame, because he's, from all accounts, he's a good director, unless he was standing in, like, you think Will Ferrell directed it? And, like, he,
0: he... Did he ghost direct this movie? Yeah, it's not that far-fetched. I mean... The thing is with this movie it's not like one of these movies like john carter or scott pilgrim where it was a big story that it flops there was a lot of like retrospectives done on it and a lot of behind the scenes stuff dug up it just came and went kind of like the black Dahlia that we covered last week it just came and went and nobody ever really thought to look back on it and and find it out so much as we might like to be we're not Journalists. I'm not going to go interview Ken Alterman (laughs) and find out what the fuck happened to him. I'm just here to tell you that based on my Googling, I don't know what the fuck happened to him. It's a real
1: mystery because this movie, there's nothing amateur about the direction of this movie. No. It's both a successful sports drama and an absurd comedy. And it hits all those notes. It's not so easy that any dummy could do it. So somebody, either Ken Alterman or somebody using his name, put a lot of hard work (laughs) in and directed a good movie. And and we'll never know what happened.
0: This was the last wolf feral does sports comedy that we got probably due to the fact that it lost money so the other three we mentioned blades of glory talladega Nights, kicking and screaming talladega Nights made 163 million dollars against a 72 million dollar budget not as huge a hit as i originally thought i thought talladega Nights was like a massive hit that's just barely doubling your budget yeah. which is not where i thought and then blades of glory kind of the same made 145 million 61 million dollar budget and then kicking and screaming 56 million earned against a 45 million dollar budget that definitely lost money you know maybe we'll cover that one day it's, it's fine. It's not as good as this. I think this is the second best of all of them, right behind Talladega Nights. But then he does have an eSports movie in production, which I'll be curious to see. Are you familiar with eSports, Ian? I
1: am a little bit. I know that it's a big thing, and if I was a young person, I would have to be a fan of it, I guess.
0: It's kind of my day job. I work in the video game industry, and eSports adjacent, I would say. So, yeah, I have to follow it pretty closely. It'll be interesting to see what Will Ferrell does with that as a movie. But all I know about it is that it's an eSports movie, and it's in production. That's what IMDb has to say about it or in pre-production rather oh, okay. so than the planning phases pharaoh would follow this up obviously with Step Brothers, which we mentioned a lot Step Brothers already had like trailers out and posters out when this movie was released which some people credited with why this movie failed because Step Brothers looked better and people were like well if i'm gonna see a will pharaoh movie in 2008 i'm gonna go see that one i don't know how much i buy that but You know, that's a theory.
1: I could see that having some influence. If you are going to get to pick, or if you think that you need to make a choice, Semi-Pro is the more tired choice. You're like, Step Brothers sounds fresh and new. Farrell and John C. Riley acting like dumb, kooky kids. That feels really different and wacky. And, oh, I might have seen Semi-Pro because I think I saw Talladega Nights in it. Maybe it's going to be the same movie. Right. So I get where, like, it could lose the battle if you're forced to put them head to head. But whether anyone actually felt forced to make a Sophie's Choice, I don't know if that really happened.
0: And th- there's something to be said, too, that Step Brothers is a feral and McKay movie, whereas Pro is just a feral movie and his track record without Adam McKay is not nearly as good as mm-hmm. his track record with him. Yeah. The McKay and Farrell collaborations are all pretty great in my opinion. Where he's strayed has been when he went out from that partnership, which has been in the news a lot lately because apparently they're not on great terms.
1: They're not friends anymore. It's a sad little story. I read a little bit about that.
0: Adam McKay doesn't want to talk about it anymore, but we don't care. We We're haven't not talked personally about it yet. involved. Yeah. Yeah. I guess a lot of it had to do with the um it was Showtime and I don't know what it's called now, but the Lakers series will Farrell really wanted to play Jerry Bus. Yeah, another
1: basketball connection.
0: Yeah, McKay cast John C. Riley, Will Ferrell's best friend, apparently, to play Jerry Bus. So I wonder what that did to the Riley and Ferrell friendship. They didn't really comment on that.
1: That was the weird part for me. It's like, how did John C. Riley take this part, knowing that his best buddy really wanted it? Unless he was somehow kept in the dark during the process of it. But why wouldn't he say, "Hey, Adam, don't make me do this. This is not right."
0: Yeah, I don't know. The whole situation is sticky and unfortunate.
1: Yeah, it's a shame. And I guess that whole row happened already a while back. Adam McKay was forced to talk about it after keeping quiet on it for a
0: couple of years. I know they broke up Gary Sanchez Productions, which was their joint production company a few years ago. I think Succession was one of the last things they co-produced mm. under that banner. Anyway, I'm sure there'll be more news coming out about that.
1: Yeah, we can only speculate so much.
0: So, Step Brothers followed up this big hit critically commercially then came land of the lost which was probably the biggest black mark on will ferrell's career because that movie sucks although we've only seen it once we'll have to rewatch it eventually there's no way we can't cover land of the lost yeah. at some
1: point. <laughs> it's coming into the zone it's, eventually
0: i think our boy yorm directed that oh
1: really okay interesting yeah i know back. he's
0: i know he's in it as a little weird guy but i'm fairly certain Yorm Tacone directed it no brad silbering directed it oh, okay. he just acted in it that's weird did he play chaka yeah, you play Chaka.
1: Oh, man, that brings back memories for the original Land of the Lost. That's how old I am.
0: I did not know the original Land of the Lost. I knew it was a thing, but I never saw it. After that was The Other Guys, which is maybe my favorite Will Ferrell movie. I oh, really, really love The Other Guys. Okay. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that movie, which is weird because Mark Wahlberg's in it. And that's usually like an immediate sign that I'm probably not going to like it is that much. to turn but- you off, yeah. I think he's playing against his type enough and also like playing with his image in that movie a little bit in a fun way. And then Everything Must Go, which was a, a dramatic role for Farrell, which got good reviews, but didn't get a wide release. So hard to say what kind of financial impact it had. Did a lot of voice work and weird vanity projects like. Casa de mi Padre which was a Spanish language film that he starred in which was like a straight drama type movie Um, that movie was really weird very strange I watched it once but like I say watched it was a green out situation you know what I mean by green out explain I was almost too high to know what was happening okay like the movie was on but couldn't tell you much about it but yeah
1: I think it's actually a comedy but I'm actually I, I wasn't high when I saw it and I'm still not sure it's very weird but I remember coming away like oh that was
0: cool I think and then he also also did, he just made like a Lifetime movie with Kristen Wiig out of nowhere. I can't remember what it's called. Hold on. He gets on these little tangents where he wants to get outside his comfort zone and, and be experimental. So Casa de Mi Padre was clearly in that vein. A Deadly Adoption <laughs> was the movie. Yeah, it was like a straight.
1: That's a straight title. That's not an ironic title.
0: It was a Lifetime movie that is hilarious, but, and I think they know it's funny, but they play it completely straight. Wow. It's worth checking out. That seems like, yeah,
1: trolling some of the people who might tune into Lifetime movies and never know that they're watching a joke. Is that possible?
0: I think that's what they were going for. It's him and Kristen Wiig. So they both have these subversive tendencies where they like to troll a little bit. But like the rest of the cast is Lifetime regulars. They wanted to apparently make it on the low and just have it release on TV without any fanfare. But then I guess the studio really wanted them to use their star power to get some more eyes on it. So it got away from their original vision. But it's a fascinating artifact. (laughs) I would have been
1: so stupid. Sneaky to just release it and not promote it or make any. I know it. that would be a, a real a deadly prank.
0: adoption. Will Ferrell's got like blonde hair, but like a dark brown beard in it. I'm just looking at the poster right now. I really have to watch this movie. Oh, I'm going to check it out. So th- then he made the campaign. Another movie we'll have to cover. Which was him and Zach Galifianic. It's kind of a political thriller. Right. Smarter than you would think. It's not like a real dumb movie, but actually has some stuff to say. And so it did get good reviews, but it was a bomb financially. Okay. And then he's had some bad luck lately. So the movies he's made in the last few years are The House with Amy Poehler, also a bomb. Holmes and Watson, huge bomb. And probably, I think that was the one that got 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. Wow. It was really poorly received. People said it was like almost unfinished, is how bad it was. And then Downhill, which was his kind of dramedy with. Julia Louis-Dreyfus, which was a remake of a foreign film. Got bad reviews and bombed. Oh,
1: I heard about that. Yeah.
0: And then Eurovision was his Netflix movie with Rachel McAdams, which I thought was fun, but mixed reviews to say the least. But he's getting really good reviews for uh, The Shrink Next Door, which is his Apple Plus miniseries with Paul Rudd.
1: Hey, that sounds good.
0: Which is like a drama, dark, maybe like very dark comedy. Woody Harrelson didn't miss a beat after this movie. He's made roughly 4,000 things. Since then, some good, some bad, but that's the way his career goes. You know, he'll work. If you got money, he'll show up to set and put in a Woody Harrelson performance, which is usually better than okay. I'm a fan.
1: Yeah, I'm a fan. I think True Detective season one cemented Woody Harrelson. I mean, if he wasn't already cemented for uh,
0: No Country, but those two- I mean, McConaughey had the flashier part in True Detective, but Harrelson right. is like the glue of that season. He's really great in it. Andre 3000, he's still acting, still doing music, but he does both very sporadically. I feel like he works when he wants to, and he doesn't have that drive to constantly be doing stuff. Uh, he played Jimi Hendrix in 2013's movie, Jimmy All Is By My Side. And then he was in High Life with a Robert Pattinson in 2018, which got pretty good reviews. And he was on Dispatches from Elser, which is an AMC series that got good reviews, but I think it's done after one season. It's not official yet, but it sounds like they're not getting a second season. Oh, wow. Well. So let's talk about the box office the week it was released. There was really nothing out there to compete with this movie, which is even more a bewildering for why it failed. It opened in first place. Like we said, the only other new releases were the other Bowling girl and Penelope, which were both like maybe a thousand theaters, if that not true wide releases. So it had no competition that week.
1: That's usually our go to like if everything else fails to explain why a movie failed, we're like, well, look what was coming out was up against it got trampled somehow. This one sounds like it had clear sailing to take off and it just fell on its face.
0: Yeah, and second week, it dropped all the way to fifth place. 62% drop is pretty severe. It made 5.7 million. And the new movies that week were 10,000 BC, which is like a historical fiction action movie that okay. sucks absolute dog dick. College Road Trip, which I think is a more... I think it's a comedy. I don't know about College Road Trip. That's not really in my wheelhouse. But yeah, it's, it's a family comedy. Martin Lawrence, so not really occupying the same demographic because semi-pro is an r-rated comedy and then uh, the bank job okay which was an action heist movie so, none of this
1: sounds like it's stealing the thunder the tropic thunder yeah. from the
0: tropics cannot figure it out oh you know who wrote the bank job no dick clement and ian La lafrenet
1: oh wow i've heard their names before
0: where have you heard their names before well they've written a bajillion things but most recently they wrote Across the Universe which we just covered two oh, weeks ago yeah. so there you go they were keeping busy because Across the Universe came out in 2007 we've got to snap out of this like 2006 to 2008 we're in we keep covering movies from those years but I think we're breaking out of it next week so I don't really know I'm having a hard time explaining why Sammy Pro was such a I mean I had a I don't necessarily see where the 55 million dollars went I could see Will Ferrell and Woody Harrelson easily splitting like 30 of that and still having enough money left over to make this movie
1: yeah they talk about they spent a lot of effort that maybe was wasted on a comedy movie, like recreating the accurate ABA uniforms of all the other teams in the league. And right. I didn't even know, I don't even notice like what team, except a couple times when they were playing a specific team, like the Spurs, you could have put any uniform, I didn't even notice who they were playing. So, okay, somebody was really into the historical aspect of it. And so probably a lot of money was spent on the production there
0: that you could have cut those corners. But I mean, there's essentially three sets in the movie, right? There's the nightclub and the back room where they play poker, which is in the nightclub. There's the arena, and there's Maura Tierney's character's house. That's really where all the movie takes place, with a couple random exceptions, but
1: and they didn't build it's, the arena like it didn't no, build a gym. Was, yeah.
0: Yeah, it was just a freestanding gym. Yeah. So, I mean, the budget probably could have been cut a little bit, but still it made 44 million dollars on a 55 million dollar budget. Even if you managed to cut 5 million dollars off that, even if you managed to cut 15 million dollars off that, it's still a failure. Yeah, you, know? you
1: can you could never it cut would, that. It didn't much. get
0: close to turning a profit. It was no. a bomb in every sense of the word. It's not borderline at all. It failed in a big way. I mean, some of the theories I read about were just the bad reviews. Which which, sure, but I feel like Will Ferrell comedies are kind of. Bulletproof against that, for the most part, at least at this point. The Will Ferrell fatigue, which we already discussed, and neither of us really agree with, just based on what happened in the years after. Step Brothers already being marketed by the time this movie came out could have been an issue, and just R-rated comedies always have a higher barrier of entry. But I don't know. I've struggled to come up with a real explanation for this one.
1: And that drop off, like you said, the opening weekend wasn't as big as some other Will Ferrell movies, but then the steep drop off also means like the hate was real it wasn't the yeah. critics it wasn't the marketing like people saw it and they told their friends don't go to see it it's not good so and
0: bad word of mouth can definitely sink a movie let me see so i can't find the cinema score rating for semi pro but i can find the audience score from rotten tomatoes which is 38% which is pretty bad audiences tend to be much kinder to movies than critics do especially like you said
1: with beloved people in it like will ferrell there should be a built-in warmth towards this movie that's just everyone was so cold to it
0: we're gonna release this episode and all the comments on our twitter are just gonna be like this movie is terrible what are these guys talking about are (laughs) we the crazy
1: ones for liking this will we help stir up the the secret cult fan base or will we get a lot of shit for trying to praise this movie that everyone hates
0: i don't know but there's only one way to find out that's to release the episode did you have a beautiful lovely final summation of your thoughts that you wanted to hit us with before we sign off here?
1: I have a very uncertain final thought tonight. I'm a person who builds my worldview by observing evidence in the world, and my mind likes to make leaps. It likes to take a little bit of evidence and make a big conclusion about what is probably true. And all the evidence we've been talking about that's out there in the world says this movie sucks, and it's not even funny slightly. And yet there I was laughing, and then I watched the movie again, and I laughed again at the same parts and the same jokes that got me again. And it's so hard to shake that cognitive dissonance of the movie is supposed to suck. And why am I loving it? And actually now with the rewatch, it's becoming one of my favorite comedies. I'm not going to say it's the best comedy ever or my favorite thing, but I would tell people like, I love this movie. It's really great. And I just can't, I can't square it. So like you said, I'm really interested to see if we get a little bit of feedback that helps me position this in the real world and figure out what is even true in life.
0: What is even true in life is a big question for a podcast about movies to tackle, (laughs) but we're going to try. We'll find out. So hit us up on Twitter at BlastZonePod or email us BlastZonePod at gmail.com. We're especially curious to hear uh, your feelings about this movie because we're kind of stumped. We both really enjoyed it and can't quite figure out where the disconnect is.
1: In some ways, this movie is a goofball comedy. In some ways, it's a sports drama. But it turns out this movie is really a mystery. <laughs> Why don't people like it?
0: All right. Well, that was Semi Pro. Thank you guys so much for listening. We will be back next week with Reindeer Games, getting into the holiday spirit. That's exciting. Yes. Please remember, rate, review, subscribe to the pod. Just mentioned all the places you can find us Blast on Pod on Twitter, blast on pod at gmail.com. Hit us up. And uh, hit us up. Feedback, suggestions criticism hopefully not but compliments always welcome and uh, we'll see you next time in the blast zone
1: see you next time in the blast zone the blast